Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 63rd episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Dan Bins, writer, filmmaker, and teacher, about letting Indiana Jones into your life. Along the way, we discuss what may be a perfect stretch of cinema, how to make a proper adventure film, and the career of celebrated Harrison Ford puncher Pat Roach. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name's Dan Bins. I'm a screenwriter, producer, filmmaker, and I also moonlight as a lecturer in media at RMIT University in Melbourne. Dan and I have known each other for quite some time. Has, has it been like, is it five years it's getting, more? Getting on to that point, five or six years. Yeah. yeah, and Dan and I along with former guest of the show, Ginger Turner, and our friend Jen Dougherty, were part of a short-lived show called The Culture Squad, where we talked about texts and books and comics and movies and things like that, which has sadly been consigned to the ether and will never hear the light of day again. You can chalk it up as very effective practice for the math of you. Yeah, we can call it a safe place to be bad. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Not that it was bad. Some of it was very good. It was just a little little undirected. It was great fun. It was great fun indeed. And Dan, you, you actually asked to be on the show. And I was at the stage where I was not asking a lot of my friends to be on the show. So my local friends, purely because I didn't want to be the person who walked up and said, Hey, hey, uh, do, do you want to be on my podcast? <laughs> but I was very lucky that you came along because you're one of my friends who has taking the thing that we all have and this kind of all-consuming love of culture and turned it into a job and also a doctorate because you are Dr. Dan Bins. I am, yeah, and I keep forgetting and my students email and they say, Dear Dr. Bins, and I can't even say, I think you mean my father because my father's not a doctor. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I completed a PhD on war cinema and I looked at Hollywood war film in particular and to cut an 85,000 word story short, my argument was basically that recent war films have tended more towards the propaganda, the kind of nationalist worldview of early war films from the 1930s and 40s. I'm lucky enough to have had that research reworked and, and published a month or so ago. The book's called The Hollywood War Film, which is a very original, original title. But it's been really, really interesting to sort of channel my love of film and pop culture and something of my interest in politics and society and how films affect us into an extended piece of work and I'm sort of continuing that work in what I'm doing at the moment. I gotta ask Dan, did any of your battleship work get into the book? I believe I reference Peter Berg's 2012 masterpiece (laughs) battleship. I believe I mention it 
once in an incredibly dismissive way that belies the unabashed love that I have for that film. Didn't you write it? It was an article or a paper or something on it? Or was it just one of your posts? Because I recall reading a, a very tense description of there's like a scene where they're going under the ship, like an, under the deck and stuff and being yeah. and the work that's being done in that film. That was a, a published, refereed academic journal article God damn it. That basically <laughs> argues that Battleship is an example of the way that narratives are changing in the era of digital visual effects. So between that and my article on, no, my book chapter rather, in a collection, I wrote a chapter on Rob Bowman's 2005 film Electra. Starring Jennifer Garner in the lead role. I've developed a reputation as becoming something of a uh, defender, so to speak, of awful cinematic properties. <laughs> For some reason, deciding that they need to be resurrected and brought back into the popular consciousness. I was saying it on Twitter the other day. I learned the words to singing in the rain thanks to the beginning of the Matthew Broderick Godzilla movie. <laughs> so I, I cannot point fingers. And the way I learned it was by watching that movie over and over and over again. Well, look, everything's relative, right? So it could have been Clockwork Orange that you learned that from. Which is how my dad learned the words to that song. And he used to sing it when he was doing stuff. And, uh, and he would take great glee in telling me, oh, it's this song from this movie, A Clockwork Orange. Not, you know, it's a song from the movie Singing in the Rain. As long as he wasn't gleefully kicking people in masking tape while he was doing He was it. kicking leaves that he was raking and explained to me that there was this really funny scene where the guy was kicking somebody. Oh, yeah. And just like... It's hilarious. <laughs> Oh, man. Hilarious in the most terrifying way. <laughs> yes, I, I was glad that my first exposure to the song Singing in the Rain was the film Singing in the Rain and not that scene from A Clockwork Orange. Otherwise, it would, I would have had a very different opinion of that song. Truly, it's for the best. Yes, yes. <laughs> So Dan, let's start from the beginning. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up all over the place, but funnily enough, my first home was around eight kilometers from where I'm presently sitting. I'm based in Melbourne now, and I grew up in a house, Vermont, which is a suburb probably 12 to 15 k's east of Melbourne, CBD. From there, we moved around quite a bit. I moved from Melbourne to Tamworth, which is a very, very different city in kind of rural New South Wales. And from there, I moved to Wollongong for a little while, and then to Western Sydney, where I kind of hung around in various homes for sort of 10, 12 years. A varied geographic experience of youth. And so, let's say, growing up in the greater Melbourne area, what sort of kid were you? I was quite young when we were here, so I have very scattered memories, mostly of we had a the back of the house it was a, a kind of a three-level house it was two-story but we had like a, a kind of like a basement where there was an office and some storage and stuff but the top floor had windows all along the back that looked out over what was then very green I'm not sure how green it still is now but looked over all the houses to the Dandenong Ranges which is a, a kind of a mountain range think Blue Mountains near Sydney. Mm. My days were spent, or days and nights or whatever, were spent primarily pretending to be one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> or Power Rangers. That was that era when I was sort of quite young before we moved away and, and something must have changed because, you know, I, I saw Star Wars for the first time and that 
embedded itself in my brain and hasn't left ever since. But that kind of aligned itself with living in the country and just having kind of wide open spaces and kind of, I suppose, in some way, sympathizing with a certain character in Star Wars that wanted to get off a particular rock and get into the world proper. Sort of quiet kid, reading quite a lot, doing the typical Australian kid thing of being outdoors quite a lot, riding my bike everywhere. I had a BMX, of course. (laughs) I had dogs a lot growing up, so there was lots of riding bikes and having dogs running alongside me we had horses for a little while while I was growing up so I rode horses quite a lot you know grandparents lots of family around all the time school friends you know family was kind of the constant because school friends kind of changed as I moved around some I stayed in touch with and and, you know some you lose track of but sort of family and dogs and bikes and running around and, and VHS tapes and Nintendo was kind of my day to day this is sounding all very pastoral And it's very soothing. Idyllic, right? It sounds idyllic when I kind of run through it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you mentioned dogs running alongside bicycles. And I had a bit of that too. Although now I see people with like large dogs on bicycles while they hold the lead. Yeah. And having walked a large dog, I do not know how those people live to see the setting sun. Just risky. Incredibly risky. Because what if that dog sees something like you know, a possum or a rabbit or something, and it is perpendicular to the way you are going. Yeah. You're going over, pal. Yeah. Again, something very Australian, perhaps Canadian, I don't know. But there's, there is something very Australian about doing things that are incredibly risky like that, that <laughs> seemed like a, an amazing idea at the time, until the dog sees something shiny or another dog <laughs> or something. Yeah. So when you were a kid, what like you mentioned, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and VHS tapes and stuff. So what sort of things were catching your eye? I guess it was anything that was on before or after school. This is going to be incredibly back in my day, but I suppose that's the nature of the podcast. There would be morning cartoons and there would be afternoon shows on that would be, you know, that would very much target the kid that's just gotten home from school. So we had Bananas in Pajamas, it was Sesame Street, it was Play School. And then the cartoons that were on were sort of Power Rangers and... Pokemon a bit later on, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, obviously, were those kind of stock-in-trade properties that no kid, you know, this wasn't the era of on-demand anything for kids, unless it was a book. So it was whatever was on TV at the time. I vaguely remember a very early, very badly rendered 3D Max Steel, which I think is still a property that's happening. Yes. (laughs) Now I I saw on Stan or something that that film has been released and I'm just very concerned about how the very poorly rendered 3D animatics of that show have been made live action. Oh, I can tell you without even having seen it, it's going to be bad. (laughs) Bad. It's going to be real bad. And I've found like I've revisited Reboot and I've revisited Beast Wars. Oh, Reboot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of other 3D animated things. And yes, I have very fond memories and a lot of that stuff does not stack up. We have come quite a ways. I mean, I have very nostalgically wonderful memories of things like Postman Pat and Fireman Sam and as a bit of a laugh I have a friend who lives not far away so we were catching up for dinner and for a bit of a laugh because they're on stand we decided to put on an old Postman Pat and that really does not stack up. It doesn't age particularly well. Was it stop motion puppetry or was it claymation? I never actually watched Postman Pat. I was in the wrong country. Both Fireman Sam and Postman Pat were stop motion. I mean that's not to downplay the fact that now we have a renewed 
renewed appreciation for the absolute patience and artistry, the aesthetic of that kind of stop motion animation. And of course, it's full of daggy British humour, which we're very, very fond of. But just some of the storylines and some of the through lines and character arcs don't particularly stack up very well nowadays. I've heard that Postman Pat has a helicopter now. And I don't know what to make of that. I wonder if the title song is now in dubstep or, <laughs> you know. You joke, but we've said it, so that means it exists on the <laughs> yeah, internet now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, are, we are moments away from that particular meme. So I'm going to ask a very specific question. And I know that you and I have had long conversations about this. Mm-hmm. Dan, when did you invite Indiana Jones into your life? (laughs) I didn't exactly invite Indiana Jones. He was introduced to me by my father, Dr. Hen... No, sorry. (laughs) He introduced me by my dad, who bought me a VHS copy of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Okay. Which, you know, I suppose chronologically is just an interesting entry point. But he was very much of the opinion, as I think quite a lot of parents of people of our, yours and my generation have this kind of very strong connection, like they might have seen it in the cinema or come to it a little bit later and it's their nostalgic property or they may have seen it in their formative years. So they kind of foist it on us. This was very much a him saying, I love this. It wasn't implied that I would be disowned if I didn't like it. (laughs) No, that's, that's very cruel. But yeah, he gave me the VHS and I watched it and it remains my favorite film of the franchise. And I think that may just be because it was the first one that I saw. I objectively now think it is the strongest of the three. Uh, and that's just my opinion. But I think there was something in the story and there was something in the characters, maybe because Indy's dad is in the film and my dad gave me the VHS. There might be some weird kind of emotional resonance there. But that was my first introduction. I think I was around eight or nine. And that film remains, I think, my second favorite film of all time. Yeah, yeah I- I had a similar experience, but with me, it was Temple of Doom. And I know that is one of the lesser entries in the franchise, according to a lot of people. But again, with that viewpoint of being a kid that's just had this put in front of me, I didn't see it. It was just, this was the movie. And true to, and again, it was my dad as well, so a bit of a theme there. Yeah. I think there's something about the way my dad would present movies. He would do it with Star Wars too, and he would do it with other things where he would do the dad thing of leaning over to the kid and going, oh, that's because in the other movie, this happened. <laughs> yeah, dad's planning. Exactly. It's like, it can also be annoying. To me, it was oh, there's so much more here. There's a bigger story. This is this legendary thing. Yeah. The other thing was that, I mean, I I lived apart from my dad from the age of kind of seven or eight. You know, there was obviously a connection there in the sense that this is something that I could take home and watch again and again and just be reminded of the first couple of times that I saw it with my dad. And it's interesting that it was actually my mum that introduced me to Star Wars. So it's an interesting kind of very Lucas and Spielberg-centric paternal and maternal kind of connection maelstrom thing going on there but indie was something that i very strongly associate with my dad and have obviously come to appreciate again and again as i've gotten older in very very different ways but yeah that was my first exposure to indie was last crusade it does also help that all of those movies are just incredibly well shot yeah not a 
handheld camera in sight. And I think that's something that I've come to appreciate a great deal more recently where I'm not averse to handheld cameras, but I am averse to the overuse, the egregious overuse of handheld cameras, which we see a lot in action films now because it's become shorthand for immediacy and action and fast paced. And I think those films, the original Indiana Jones franchise, Star Wars, and a lot of kind of action films of the late 80s and 90s are kind of proof that you can have excitement and fast-paced action and you don't have to do a poor green grass and just shake the hell out of the camera. There are some incredibly beautiful shots. In Last Crusade in particular, Raiders, I think as well, has quite a few beautiful images. The opening, that fantastic transition from the Paramount logo to the, the opening mountain in Raiders. Yeah, and the fact that that was an actual mountain that they had to find and shoot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just one of the magic moments in film i saw raiders second interestingly and it was a little bit older but not too much and you know i think there was something about being raised not necessarily as a christian my parents weren't particularly religious but my grandparents on my dad's side good tea and cake eating anglicans so there was something about having some knowledge of religion and and you know, Protestantism in particular, that I knew about the Ark of the Covenant, I knew about the Holy Grail. So to see it kind of recontextualized in this cool way was something that was really interesting to me and probably set me up to be a lapsed religious person later in life in some strange way. The imagery of those films is incredible. You know, I always think of that first shot of Marcus and Sala and Indy riding into the Canyon of the Crescent Moon, which is, of course, in Petra in Jordan and that wonderful tracking shot as the horses move into the canyon and that's just a, a the color in that frame is just immaculate and I don't know whether they were madly running around with sails or with rakes trying to get the dust to move in a particular way <laughs> I have some awareness now of what goes on behind the camera but there was just something about that shot that was simply magical there's so much of what I get and thing is I've revisited those movies many times as an adult. Yeah. And especially Raiders, I am struck, especially in the first maybe 40 minutes of that movie, how much of it is visual shorthand mm-hmm. to tell you things. How much of it is shown, not told. Yeah. I mean, even everything from the introduction of Indiana Jones, like where he, you know the guy tries to backshoot him, and he goes with the whip, and you see the light across his eyes. Every little motion or movement or action tells you something. And the one I always think of is when you go to the bar. Is it in Nepal where Marion is? Yeah, yeah, with the drinking competition. And, yeah, which, yeah, which I still say is one of the most convincing drunk acting, both oh, in movie yeah. and then outside of movie, where it's where she goes to take the drink and you see the smell hit her. Yeah. And for a second, you see her kind of just react. And I'm like, oh, yes. I have been there. That is the, I don't want to drink anymore, but I'm committed. Yeah, it's face. about it's about dignity. It's about, yeah. Yeah, the physical movement, and it's all in the neck. It's not even in the face. It's like yeah. her neck tries to propel her head away from the booze. Yeah. It's a pure, like, lizard brain response, which makes it all the better because of the fact that she's faking. But Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Karen Allen is just incredibly underrated. She's a magnificent, perfect foil for Indy. And when he walks in, like, she's cleaning up the glasses, and he walks in, and his shadow is against the wall. 
and it's yeah. enormous. Yeah. And she turns around and she chucks the glasses down. Yeah. And she and she calls him out by name. And it's like that that I could frame that one particular shot and put it on my wall, I swear. And that shadow just becomes the character. The silhouette of him in the with the hat and you can kind of see the hint of the whip and in one frame we know who that character is. We know that he has a reputation, we know that he's a kind of larger than life character. But the magic of the series is that over those three films you find out that he is a, a flawed and both lucky and unlucky and Mm. he's funny and he's vulnerable and I think that's the strength much more of Spielberg than it is of Lucas and and I mean obviously Star Wars remains my favorite film franchise but I've grown to realize that I think Spielberg takes his cue very much from westerns and from old TV serials in the sense that they didn't have much time to set up character. So they relied a lot on the visual language of, you know, whether it was TV or film to establish character, to establish setting. And he does it so effectively and so quickly. And he uses dialogue in a really economical way and gets actors that know how to deliver lines that you've never heard before in such a way that you understand their import, you understand the meaning and the history behind them. When we meet Indy, he's with a character that he has a history with. He has a history with every person almost that he encounters, certainly every major character. So we just feel like we're being dropped in at this moment when he's just about to go on this quest. And then when he brings the idol back to the university, you know, he has a history with Marcus. So it just feels like part of a continuing saga. It feels like a weekly episode and that's why Spielberg uses those visual storytelling techniques. It's funny that you mentioned that because I've spoken in a previous episode with Chris Sims about how I had all the novelizations of all three Indiana Jones movies and specifically the Temple of Doom one was a paperback with blue edges on the pages, blue metallic edges. I thought mm-hmm. that was really cool. I found it at a yard sale. It was in reading the books that I realized the Temple of Doom chronologically happens last. Yeah. Just to fit with the political climate and what's going on. Yeah. It has to follow the others. And I remember thinking, like, that's so weird that it's the second movie, and yet the third movie had to bring it back in order to make it relevant. I mean, we're talking about kind of trilogies, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, sort of discounting the recent Star Wars films, and we're not going to talk about the other Indiana Jones film. (laughs) We're talking... Goddamn monkeys with Shia LaBeouf's hair. (laughs) We're talking about trilogies, and we're talking about, you know, growing up at a time, you know, I mean, even still now, DVDs aren't necessarily inexpensive, so you could really only afford to get one at a time. Box sets weren't a massive thing, so very often you would get the movies one at a time, and, you you know, you'd kind of beg your parents to get you the next one or, or whatever. So it's, it's kind of whatever they would give you was your viewing order. So, I mean, my viewing order was Last Crusade, Raiders, Temple. Mine was Temple, Last Crusade, Raiders. Yeah. So even if objectively you know that because of some historical cue or whatever, they're meant to be in a different order, your order is the right order for you. And that's also why when you get something like the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which I remember as this endless series of videotapes that I had to shelve out yeah, with young Sean Patrick Flannery and a very old-aged makeup Harrison Ford, and the idea that, oh yeah, you can just take this character and just slot them in. Oh, what's this? They visited Flanders in World War One. 
cool. That happened. <laughs> oh, yes. And then, oh, they went to Constantinople just when it was about to become Istanbul. And there was a secret smuggling ring set among a group of dervishes. And it's like, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. That's something that could happen. The montage from Forrest Gump just read across <laughs> the entire franchise. But I think that's also testament to the character and the way that that character was set up. Obviously, is an heroic type figure, but a flawed hero, an anti-hero, a bit of a, a scoundrel. And a rogue got me interested in this idea of kind of a lovable rogue. And that's a character that I've revisited in my own work a number of times. But set up very much to be an accessible, likable human character i mean that's perfectly set up in that entirely improvised section where you know the local villain is waving the sword around in an incredibly threatening kind of way and indy just pulls out the revolver and shoots him not only is that one of the funniest moments in film but it's also his character. I mean, he's not going to get into a protracted fist or sword fight with someone if there is an easier way. And, and I think that's one of the strengths of Harrison Ford as an actor is that he can just kind of pull that lopsided face, you know, the Labrador face, and, and just kind of pull something off that's funny and, you know, very often improvised. He did a lot of improvising and it would just kind of work. It's that, ah, oh, jeez, face. I'm going to have to do this, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that you said and it's something that... Has- has been discussed at length on another show whose hosts have been on my show called I Will Fight You, where they talk about the Han Solo kind of roguish character, how it can be used well and how it can also be done poorly by not understanding what makes this character what they are. And what they point out, which is specifically important, is that Han Solo is a really shitty smuggler. Yeah. <laughs> He's not good at his job. <laughs> Which I did appreciate that they picked up on in The Force Awakens in a very amusing way. It's like we meet him and people are trying to kill him because he owes people money and yeah. he screwed someone over and he's done something wrong and he's very braggadocious about all the good things he's done. But really, he's just, he's by the skin of his teeth. You know, if he was in Firefly, he'd be on the raggedy edge. <laughs> he's always on the back foot. It is that orgy's face. He pulls off quite well because he's always puts himself in those situations where he has to do something that he doesn't want to do but he has to do to kind of you know keep living or that's a way in for the audience if it's not a invulnerable heroic mythic figure then it has to be someone who's flawed and who has a history and who we're meeting halfway through an incredibly terrible sequence of events and it's something where and see again i keep just keep thinking back to that first 40 minutes of raiders and when he turns up at the bar and you see his shadow when you see marion's reaction to him you'd think in that moment okay we've seen him take an idol off a bunch of people and have an adventure and pack a gun before he leaves, all this stuff. And he's like worried that he's going to have to go and do something dangerous. And he turns up at the bar and we think, oh, is he going to be a bad guy? Because he's shot like a villain in a spaghetti western in that scene. Yeah. Where the shadow leads, goes ahead of him. It's her reaction that saves the scene. Because she sees him and she smiles. And she's kind of rueful for a second. But it's also a turn for us yeah. as well because suddenly we know from the delivery of his name by Marion that he has a reputation and, and that he has a history and that he is not the heroic sort of figure that he may have been set up to be because uh, you know if you think about the kind of classic westerns or other classic type films the first encounter between the two leads the male and female usually is one of romance or wistful kind of longing or you know sexual tension or whatever it happens to be whereas this one's way past all that that 
was way in the past. You know, this is just a reunion that neither of them necessarily want to have. And that's interesting. That's intriguing for the audience. And then she hits him real hard, which is great. Really hard. And like, that's a really good screen punch. Like you feel that. The sound design in that, that was a fat pig that they used to get that punch. Yeah. Yeah. Because Marion fucking rules. That's yeah, she's why. the best. She's an amazing character. I remember reading somewhere that they get the punch sound effect in Indiana Jones. I read about Foley because that's who I am. Damn it, I'm not hiding myself. Foley is uh, an incredibly underrated art form. Yeah. And it, it's endlessly fascinating. They basically had a pile of leather jackets and they would hit a baseball bat into it. <laughs> that's that whack sound that you hear. Sort of the fist going through layers of flesh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a film made up of iconic moments. They are films made up of iconic moments, but they're just really great and simple stories, very well told. There's something about I was talking with Randall Trang about this when we we're talking about early Jackie Chan movies and the comedic aspect and the sort of operatic violence that happens around Jackie Chan as he's just trying to get home or mm-hmm. just trying to get away, stop a vase from falling over or something. Because there is never any ill intent in those moments our sympathy is always with him even when we kind of want the bad thing to happen we don't want it to happen to him yeah i think of the tank and jeep sequence when indy's on the horse at the end of last crusade or towards the end of the last crusade when they're on the way to the canyon he sort of charges headlong towards the tanks because henry uh, sean connery is in the tank that's his only goal his only goal is to get his dad back you get the feeling that if indy had his way he would do that silently and surgically and then he wouldn't have to hurt anyone or he'd just have to hurt the two guys on the tank where his dad is but because it's you know obviously a a big blockbuster film there has to be a prolonged sequence of violence and people getting shot and people being punched off tanks and jeeps and stuff but as you say that storm of action tends to happen around the protagonist he has that lopsided labrador face the whole way through So you know he's reluctant about everything that he has to do at this point. That's a, a shorthand for you have to feel for this character. Yeah, and any time like, you see Indy get into a straight-up fight where he is outmatched, again, that face is throughout. So anytime he fights Pat Roach in those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pat Roach, who has beaten up Harrison Ford so many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's in Raiders, where he's the big mechanic, and he's fighting him uh, next under, to the flying Under the wing, plane, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is doing absolutely everything he can to get away from this guy he has no interest in fighting this guy he wants to get away please let me get away and and in the end he doesn't defeat him you know he's defeated by the wing right he's defeated by the the propeller and then when he fights him in temple of doom he's defeated by the rock crusher yeah and even in last crusade where you get the nazi colonel as the stand-in yeah he goes off the cliff. Indy doesn't yeah. throw him off the tank or shoot him. No. Again, because y- you want your hero to be relatable and you don't want him to just shoot somebody. But then you have these incredibly, these incredible set-up moments of luck, like when the three Nazis are lined up on the tank <laughs> and he shoots them with the Luger <laughs> and the bullet goes through all three of them. And, and there's that moment of surprise and kind of glee when he looks at the gun and looks at the three dudes as they fall very gracefully and artfully in different directions it's a very it's a funny moment it's full of humor and warmth it's everything that a nostalgic property from your youth should be but it's something that i can revisit and it doesn't age at all they're endlessly entertaining i mean even temple of doom which i came back to for the longest time was my least favorite I guess to a certain extent it still is, but it's my least favourite in the same way that you have a least favourite Pixar film. Or a least favourite flavour of ice cream. Yeah, exactly. I've come back to that a number of times since those early years, 
and it is a funny and action-packed. I, I remember it being quite dark, and maybe that's what turned me off when I was mm. young, because the Raiders is this sort of jaunt through the desert, and Last Crusaders has Nazis and catacombs and their sort of globe-trotting adventures, whereas Temple of Doom is obviously globe-trotting, but in a very, very different way. It's a very exotic location and it's full of different characters and you know it has that very sort of dark flavor to it which is you know it's very occult and it's very uh ritualistic and yeah you've, you've got hearts ripped out you got people being thrown into fire You've got mind control through drinking of blood. And yeah, there's there's darkness there. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is like I have enough self-knowledge to accept this. It is the first time I had ever heard the word Kali or had heard the word Maharaja or anything of that nature. Oh, yeah. Although I, I can also say I had never heard of the Holy Grail when I saw Indiana Jones in the last crusade. Right. So I, I was nine. You know, I knew who King Arthur was, but that was about it. And so the idea of, especially when you look at it from, this is a Western filmmaker. Yeah. And the the darkest installment is the one that deals in Eastern mysticism mm-hmm. as opposed to the Western mysticism of the Knights Templar and the Holy Grail. And in a very sort of blanket Hollywood Asian setting that really amps up the other of mm. that thing, that sort of location with the, the snakes and the wildlife and everything feels like it's out to get you both in the city and in the jungle in that mm-hmm. film. Um, so yeah. you're, you're never comfortable. Yeah, it's like even when India is attacked, he's attacked in his own room. It's yeah. Like something comes out of the wall and attacks him. And you kind of get out of the jungle, you get out of the city, and then suddenly you're in this mine with one of the most amazing sort of chase sequences ever on the mine cart. Oh, that, that fucking mine cart. Ah, oh, so good. Which is a masterclass in editing, first of all, but also just in how to shoot something in reasonably close confines and make it seem epic and enjoyable. I mean, so much of that is down to the score, but also to the editing. And then you're sort of put into this sort of cavern situation and you you can't relax at all through the film. And I know now, having done a bit of work in, you know, film research and writing about film, that it is because as a Western filmmaker, Spielberg is amping up the Easternness of it, dabbling in, you know, there, there isn't any sort of Catholicism or Christian symbolism used in Temple. So again, as an eight, nine year old, as you say, that was just very unsettling. I realized, by the way, that in Raiders, they're in Egypt. And I just went, Oh, shoot. But then I'm like, no, they're in Egypt getting the Ark of the Covenant, which very much ties into what I learned at Sunday school. So that tied back into that. So, sorry. Egypt, you kind of have this preconceived idea of pharaohs and pyramids, and and that settles in very early. So Egypt is kind of a known quantity, but, you know, being very white, growing up very much in middle-class Australia, that idea of, even though here in Australia we are quite close to Asia, it was still very other to me. Combine that with drinking blood and with hearts being ripped out and with people being kind of shish-kebabbed over fire just led to a very sort of unsettling experience as a youth, but revisiting that it's an incredible film again partly because of the fact that it is so unsettling but you know the action sequences the development of the character through the film and again those moments you know that's the film where he reaches back through the shutting stone gate to grab the hat yeah which which is one of the moments that has just become the character yeah and you know using the whip at various moments in all three films and short round who is such you know objectively is kind of a problematic character but is just so effective in that role and the chemistry between short round and indie is just magic they have even more chemistry than between harrison and kate capsule arguably it just works <laughs> with, that, 
with that novelization that I mentioned, and again, I've talked about it at length on this show because it was informative for me, because that short round has a very specific arc in that book, where until the point where, he, where Indy falls through all the awnings and lands through the roof of his car, that's about the, the end, end of, of the, the chapter, chapter when, when you, meet you meet short round. round. Right. Because you meet him, and he, like, he picks someone's pocket... And then he goes fishing, and then he sneaks into a movie. He sees The Thin Man, which is great. That's amazing. Uh, then goes and, like, wants to get his fortune told, and the guy won't do it. And, like, there's all, all of these, like, little things of his life when he's not with Indy that he's got it pretty good for a street urchin. But yeah. this is basically, this is, you know, this is the extent of his experience. But he's, then, he's also filling in time with these vignettes until Indy turns back up again. Yeah, and so then he goes and nicks a car and ties blocks to the pedal so he can drive it. <laughs> yeah. And parks it out front and tries to look cool and, like, chats with people as if he's someone's tough driver. And everyone's looking at him like, why, why is there a 10-year-old driving the car? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not getting paid enough to ask this question. But the great thing about the movie is that we're not given time to ask those questions. No, no. Because he falls in and they're off and it's a sequence and yeah and that's kind of the magic of the films right is that it's just a cascading snowball or giant rolling stone ball if you will <laughs> of just moments where in the same way we talked about Hitchcock before he doesn't give you a chance to reorient yourselves to what's going on it's one big yes and from the audience yeah that's high concept hollywood in a nutshell is that there are themes somewhat of heroism and i think last crusade pushes the kind of religious symbolism thing pretty heavily and contrast that with nazism and prejudice and bloody blah but there are moments of respite when we are getting some backstory but generally it's just a non-stop sort of adventure proper adventure film now I just want to watch it again, Dan. This is your fault. It's good. It's good. They're good. You should. <laughs> Everyone should. Regularly. And you know what? I think that's a good place for us to end it. All right, Dan, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Binzy, B-I-N-N-S-Y. I have a bunch of random blog posts, my publications and film work. You can find that at www.danielbins.net. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'm definitely going to have you back because there was a very long list of topics we wanted to discuss, and I'm sure we'll get to them at some point. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a massive fan of the podcast, a big fan of you, obviously, so I look forward to returning at some stage. Thank you very much to Dr. Dan Bins for his time. Now, true to his nature, Dan sent me a very long list of cocktail recommendations, which are as follows. Fave is an old-fashioned, so that should give you some direction, maybe. Inspired by North by Northwest, I also enjoy a Gibson, though not very often. Inspired by every film ever, a Manhattan or a Negroni. But otherwise enjoy bourbon, rye especially. I'm a bit of a scotch fiend, Highland all the way, can't do Islay. Other flavors? Apple, orange, mint, not necessarily in that order or together, bitters, ginger, cherries, at which point even Dan himself admits that we're veering into deconstructed old-fashioned territory. And then he finishes with a final unpunctuated sentence that just says, I'm slowly getting into gin. Alright Daniel, I'll bite. Like you, I'm a fan of bourbon, rye especially, but I'm going to stick with the angle of the scotch feed. 
but here is both the blessing and the curse of the old fashioned. There are many ways to make this drink, and its simplicity means that it's even more important to get it right. Your proper old fashions have no salad, no over dilution, just whiskey, bitters, and sugar over ice done in the proper order. The problem with that is because there's not much to it, you need a proper scotch to make it work for real. So what I've done is I've come up with a recipe that's actually for an up drink, and I've deconstructed it into an old-fashioned style drink that's full of big strong flavors and uses a couple of secret ingredients that will make your middle-of-the-road scotch really sing. And so I present the Ravenwood. Add a teaspoon of brown sugar to a rocks glass. I lucked out at my local supermarket and found some very nice demerara sugar, but basic brown sugar will work in a pinch. Add three to four dashes of fig and cinnamon bitters. This is actually a new ingredient I just found this weekend. In Australia, you can find Mr. Bitters fig and cinnamon, or if you're in the US, you can try and find the <clears throat> Brooklyn Hemispherical Black Mission fig bitters. Swirl the glass until the sugar is completely dissolved into the bitters. Add one and a half ounces of blended scotch, an ounce of grapefruit juice, half an ounce of lemon juice, and a dash of soda water. Chuck in a giant ice cube and give a glass a spin. Just before serving, twist a bit of citrus peel over the drink and rub it on the edge of the glass. It's a drink that hasn't forgotten how to show someone a good time. And boy, it's something. Enjoy! Matthew is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Just to let you know, though, I am booked out for the rest of the year. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You can pledge like 200 bucks and make my day. Patrons get all sorts of rewards, and I would really just really appreciate it. Some reward tiers come with thanks on the show, so this week I would like to especially thank Heather Miller. Thank you very much, Heather. You've made my day. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. If you go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, you'll find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one. That's more than 10 hours of music, including this song. It's Smack Water Jack by Carol King. It was a Dan recommendation, and I've been quietly bopping to it all week. Next week, I'll be talking to Dr. Osvaldo Oyola, writer, literary scholar, and creator of the Middle Spaces blog, about the intersection between comic books and hip-hop. Join me, won't you? <laughs> <laughs>